turn to Hebrews in chapter 6. We have this interesting passage where, where Paul is talking to the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, and he's he's wanting to be able to move on with them, but recognizes he can't to some degree because certain fundamentals uh, were sort of lacking or shaky when they shouldn't have been. He wants them to be able to move on toward perfection. Uh, but there was this foundation there, right, that, that we all have to have. And it's an interesting passage in Hebrews 6, for those of you who are familiar, it's right here at the beginning of Hebrews 6, where he talks about this foundation, some foundational ideas of the church. And when you think of a foundation, I mean, right now we're, we're standing on a carpet, and it's not just the cold, bare foundation between us and that foundation. There's a few different layers. There's, there's stuff underneath the carpet to make it cushier. Of course, there's all the microbes and bacteria of every disgusting carpet in every hotel in the world. But regardless, there's things under our feet until you get to this thing that is essentially holding up the whole building, Right? I mean, we talk about, I, I really loved the sermonette, by the way, and the idea of a second, uh, second grader picking up a car. I don't know about you, but I imagine second grade me picking up that car. But anyway, you know, you imagine something like that and how much strength it would take. Well, imagine what it takes to hold up this entire building, right? We're all counting on the fact this building isn't just going to sink into the earth or even just the stresses of its massive weight isn't going to cause it to crack or buckle. Why does it not? Because there's this well-laid foundation underneath. And you think of all the weight, the mass of this building on that foundation has to be able to uphold it. Foundations are critical. They're important. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, we have, through Paul, God about to inspire him to talk about elements of our foundation as believers in God and as members of the church of God and as those who attain to the resurrection. So clearly it should have our attention. And you've perhaps gone over this list before. We won't be going over the whole list today. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, he's talking to them and says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. That is, we'll build on this, the things that need to be built. And I always found it you know, quite a remarkable list, and some of it really does make sense, especially when you're interacting with people in the world who come to you. Like, for instance, the foundation of repentance from dead works is so fundamental. Often, for instance, when we find baptisms that have gone wrong, quote-unquote, when someone needs to be rebaptized, which is a pretty rare phenomenon, at least in my experience, often it's an understanding of repentance that, you know, sort of was the element. Not that they had perfectly repented. Many people question their baptism from time to time because they were busy, they, they still had sin before they were baptized. Well, Duh. I mean, really, that's why. That's why you're being baptized, you know, because you, you, you're, you're overcoming all of this and you want to you move on, right? But you do find, I, I've known in cases where the person said, i got to be honest, I really didn't even know what repentance was. I wasn't repenting before I was baptized. I didn't repent after I was baptized. Especially as, as, as the worldwide church of God began to crumble. I know there were some cases like that where it was essentially just getting people in the church and it was just like the old, uh, the old sort of... Uh, Protestant uh, evangelical evangelistic effort where you just kind of get someone to decide and that's it. So there's these kind of foundational elements. They really are fundamental. That the idea that if you think of a foundation, 
These things that are super important. That without these things, the entire edifice crumbles and you have this vital list and God inspires Paul to include the laying on of hands as one of the key foundational principles in the church. Now, maybe that doesn't seem strange to you. Well, good on you. Fine. Come back for the afternoon, you know, whatever. For me, I know it really did. It, it has struck me interestingly in that way for, for quite some time. And as I studied it myself, I know I could see why. I could see why. And that's what I'd like to talk about today is the things that God teaches us by having instituted the laying on of hands as a foundational doctrine of the church of God. And so that's the title for the sermon today, Lessons from the Laying on of Hands. And I'm just kidding. If you think you already know, please stay. It's nice to, it's nice to have you here. Lessons from the Laying on of Hands. Now, for those perhaps really new, if, you're, if you've ever just come into the church and you haven't been here for long or, and haven't been baptized yet, you may not even know what that is. And if you do look it up in the Bible, it's interesting because not all the examples of laying on of hands are what we're talking about. All, it's often associated with violence to a certain extent, uh, such as when Nehemiah is telling those camping outside of the walls to come in and help Israel corrupt the Sabbath. And he says, get out of here, I'm paraphrasing, get out of here, you bums. You know, if you don't, I'll lay hands on you. Oh, he's going to make them deacons and everything. No, he's not. He's going to lay hands on them and he's going to, he's going to rough and tumble and they're, they're going to be gone. So uh, there's several places where laying on of hands is actually something violent. It's actually something negative. And there's a reason the wording is the same because it is a very physical act. You know, laying on of hands is a matter of actually laying your hands on someone. Very often the head, not necessarily in all, in all cases, you know, but there is this, this physical sense to it. So when you look it up, you've got to make sure you distinguish between those two things. But what I hope that we'll see is a few different things. And actually organizing this, this sermon was a bit of a challenge. So later on, if you want to tell me my organization was terrible, I will do my best to humbly listen to you. Because it, was, it really was a challenge. And it's, every good spokesman should be willing to, to take critique. But in terms of how I organized this, there are a lot of things I wanted to communicate. For instance, laying on of hands has been a part of, of what God does with his people since going back just about as far as biblical recorded history will let us see. It's not just the New Testament church. It goes back, you know, all the way back into Genesis. It's not a New Testament practice, as the examples show us. It's a people of God practice. Uh, it has been a part of what we do since there has been a we who do things. It goes back very far. And you start to see that and realize, well, maybe there is some kind of foundational element to this. Maybe there's a reason it's fundamental uh, to, to God and how he does things. I also thought about organizing it, and I've actually done this before and realized I didn't think this was a good way to organize it, which is organize it just by the examples, kind of going through the Bible and seeing the examples. And I found that I think the things I, I want to emphasize and help us get out of that aren't don't come out in quite the same way. So consider that a speech I failed in the past, and this is my redo, and I hope it goes, hope it goes better. Uh, rather, I would like to organize it based on the lessons themselves, the things that laying on of hands 
has to teach us. And I'm not going to pretend this is an exhaustive list, nor am I actually going to pretend these points are really distinct. That's part of the challenge. God, God is so amazing with the things he structures. Part of when I view what God tells us to do in the Bible, like the holy days, like various practices and baptism and laying on of hands and different things, is I think of it with my old high school teacher glasses on. You know, back when I was a high school teacher, I taught math, everybody's favorite subject. And you'd organize the day, right? You'd have to consider what are the, what are the lesson objectives? What are the things you want the students to learn that day they're in your classroom? And then you pick the examples. You, you try to find these math, math examples, in my case, that would really illustrate all those things. It would take them through the steps to understand. And sometimes the principles you want them to learn they're distinct, but they're also rather intertwined. And so it's sometimes hard to find examples that will only highlight this one particular element. They're all sort of woven together. So, so understand when I, when I break these out into these, into these bullet points, I don't mean to imply that these are truly distinct from each other. So you might think of them as, uh, as changes in emphasis, where I'm wanting to emphasize a particular facet of the lesson as opposed to some sort of distinct lesson from the rest. I, I overuse this analogy, and I apologize if I've used it a lot here to the point that, that our ears grow tired of it. That, that happens sometimes. But when it comes to the truth, so many elements of the truth, they remind me of a, a jewel or, or a gem that's been shaped to, to bring out its brilliance. That's what they do with diamonds, for instance, right? The, the goal is you want to... A diamond in the rough, you, you can't see its potential, right? It's there, but you just can't see it. And you need this master worksman to be able to, to shape it in such a way that the final result, its brilliance just shines through and you're able to see what a, an amazing stone it is. And so when it comes to examining the truth, often we just can't take in the whole, right? We have to look facet by facet. And so one person is looking at one facet and they're appreciating what that facet delivers to them from the jewel. But then someone else looking at the other side might see a completely different shaped facet. It's longer. It's not wider. It's got a different number of points, perhaps. Maybe it dives into the stone instead of being a, a flat surface. But that said... It's still the same stone. They're still appreciating the same truth, but a different facet. That's often how I explain Paul, quote-unquote, versus James. People in the world will pit the Apostle Paul versus James as if they're contradicting each other. When they're not, they're looking, when you look at it with God's eyes, as we know, if we're blessed to know in the church, they're speaking of the same wonderful truth concerning faith and works and how they interact. They're just focusing on a specific facet for their particular audience. And so this is, is, is going to like that. And as a result, certain things blend together. The, the brilliance of a diamond that shines through one facet you know, also impacts how it shines through another. So I don't mean for these to be distinct, but hopefully they'll work together uh, to give us a broader picture of the lessons that God gives us in the laying on of hands. And what a blessing uh, that command and that ordinance really is in the family of God and in the church of God. So what are those? So let's start with the first one I want to highlight. One of the lessons that comes to us from the fact that the laying on of hands exists in the church and is a fundamental idea to the church of God is that there are many things we need that we do not find within ourselves, that we are not self-sufficient. We must go 
outside of ourselves for those things. What God needs of us, we can't do by ourselves. How many families suffer because a husband won't submit himself and take himself to a minister or someone and say, I need help in our marriage, in our family. Because it's hard to admit, as a man at least, that we need something outside of ourselves. It's, it's difficult to accept things like that. And laying on of hands reminds us we're insufficient in of ourselves. We, in and of ourselves, we need to find sources of things beyond just us. We say that in many of the examples of laying on of hands in the Bible, like a blessing, for instance. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 48. Here we go way back in time. Genesis 48. Genesis 48, and we have Joseph bringing his children to Jacob, uh, called I, uh, Israel in this passage because his name was changed, so that they could receive the blessings. And this is the famous passage, if you haven't read it before, you really should take time with it, where he brings Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the older, Ephraim is the younger. And even though he was old and couldn't necessarily see, you have Israel or Jacob being inspired to cross his hands so that the right hand that should have gone to the older son, Manasseh, is actually placed on the head of Ephraim. And the left hand is placed on the, the head of Manasseh. So in Genesis 48 verse 2 says, Joseph brought uh, them, the two boys, from beside his knees. He bowed down with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was, on the, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he goes through some of the blessing here. I'm not going to to read the details of the blessing. But we see in verse 17, Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. It bothered him, because that's not, that's not what's supposed to happen. So he took hold. He literally grabbed his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. He thought he was correcting a mistake. Oh, silly dad, he didn't realize I'm smart enough to put the kids in the right place, you know. And so, you know, hey, dad, you know, you're always misunder, you're underestimating me, dad. I figured that out. But no, he has to tell him, no, I, I, I did this. This is what God wants. You know, the younger is actually going to be greater, which also as Americans is hard to swallow. But that's also a fact uh, that that's the case. Now, there's so many things packed into this in terms of seeing we're going back all the way to Genesis. This is literally, you know, about just almost as patriarchy as patriarch can be, right, going back this far. And these are, this is one of those fellows who, when we praise God and we look forward to the reign of Christ, we talk about serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? You're going all the way back. And part of what's fascinating to me is not just the act of what's going on, but the implication this is not a new thing. This is expected. That actually Joseph expected that a blessing is going to be passed on, and this is how blessings are passed on. To the point that when his dad crossed hands, Joseph knew, you're not, you're not doing it right, dad. How many of us hear that from our kids, right? And sometimes they're right. But you know, you're not doing it right, dad. In other words, this laying on of hands to convey a blessing was already a part of the culture of the people of God, uh, to the point that this is not a surprise. This is, this is how things are done. 
in the church. This is a foundational thing that really does go back incredibly far. But notice, it wasn't just a matter of Joseph being right with God and Joseph did have a relationship with God and he had his children and surely he prayed for his children, right? If he's any kind of father, he's praying for his children. But yet, the blessing from God, he had to go elsewhere. It wasn't sufficient for him to call upon that blessing. He had to go elsewhere. Uh, we see in Mark chapter 10 something similar in the New Testament. Mark chapter 10, in this beautiful thing that we get to do at the feast every year, whenever there's kiddos, the blessing of little children. And we read in Mark chapter 10 and verse 13 how all the people there in uh, Judea, many of them following Jesus and listening to him, it says in verse 13 of Mark chapter 10, then they brought little children to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, and he, he said, hey, you know, what are you doing? This is what we're here for, right? In fact, these kids are an example I want you to follow. And then jump to verse 16. It says, he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So again, here we have thousands of years later, this is still how blessings are conveyed. And these parents recognized they needed to go to someone. Now again, I hope we're praying for our kids. I hope we're praying and ask for God's blessings to be on them. But the laying on of hands reminds us that we are not enough. That we, there are things apart from us that we need to go out and seek. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves. There's things out there. There's things away from us. And we need to be willing to seek those things and humble ourselves. Yeah, it's, it really is interesting. You know, the, if you've ever been there with a bunch of kids at the Feast of Tabernacles, it can be a little bit of a circus because the one element of that, the one actor in the play, if you will, that didn't get his script is usually the baby, right? Uh, and the baby has, well, I'm sorry, this is my fussy time, right? You know, whatever goes on. And so, you know, we, we, we negotiate a lot of things while we're up there. We do our best to do it just like verse 16, where the ministers hold. That's why we try to say, you know, don't bring your 16-year-old, even if you're new in the church and you got this 16-year-old, you know, on your shoulder. That would be awkward for everyone. We do our best to do this. So usually the minister or one of the ministers, it's often more than one, tries to hold the baby. And then we all lay hands on the baby, which is probably pretty creepy for the baby. But still, all of us, you know, we do our best in some way, you know, like a little two fingers on a shoulder or on a head and try to convey God's blessing that's been requested by the parents, just like this model. But we do have to negotiate. Sometimes it makes sense. You know, mom and dad here, you know, especially when the kid's punching you and the rest and you're about to say the prayer and he sticks a fist, you know, right, right in your mouth. Hey, you know, sometimes mom and dad end up holding the baby. But the one thing we don't really compromise on because it is the mechanism, is the laying on of hands. We do our best. Even if kids squirming around and you feel like you're, you know, you're chasing them, you know, we do our best because that's how blessings are conveyed. This family has come seeking something that God tells them, I need to go outside of myself. And I want this for my children. So the blessing is, is a good example. Another example is ordination. Turn to Mark chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And I'm mainly just getting this in because I, I want these examples to be there to show how, I don't say omnipresent, I'm not trying to say a characteristic of God, but just how extremely present laying on of hands is in the culture of the church because God himself has placed it there. In Acts chapter 6, 
we have the case where there were certain members in the congregation that were being missed in the service provided to the congregation in terms of the uh, daily allotments concerning food and our, our money and things like that. And, and there was discontent. There was concern. So what do they do? Well, they didn't go off and just fix things themselves. They went to the leadership of the church and let the leadership of the church figure that out and weigh that and try to come up with a, a solution because that's how God does things consistently. And so as they did, they, they end up creating uh, deacons. This, this, whole, this whole job inside the church, inside the body of Christ, clearly moved by God in these circumstances to do this, end up creating an office in the church. And so they asked the people to recommend people to them who have the sort of capability that, that have God's spirit clearly in them and can do this sort of job of a deacon, this sort of physical care for the church. But whenever they came, what does it say in verse 6? It says that the people set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, that is the apostles, they laid hands on them. If you've ever seen an ordination, it's done by the laying on of hands, where someone is given an audience. And I don't know exactly how God records such things in heaven, but in in my imagination, there's a register in heaven where these names are written. Maybe it's an org chart. Maybe he's got... Microsoft Word, which is a terrible place for doing org charts, just so you know. But regardless of how it's done in heaven, that that is that's registered there, as we'll see later. These people doing this are acting on God's behalf because it's God who's acting in it, and we'll we'll get to that point. But the hands are laid. That's how that's done. If you were blessed to be able to see the stream where we saw uh, Mr. Hernandez ordained as an evangelist, that's how that's done. You saw those men there laying hands on on Mr. Hernandez. So acts of ordination, Mark chapter five. And verse 21, we have Jesus Christ in the middle of his ministry here in Judea. Mark 5 and verse 21, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she will be healed, uh, that she may be healed, and she will live. Now, in, in, we'll, we can look a little bit more about this, uh, uh, some other examples, but I want to highlight that this was the expectation. This is what you wanted Christ to come and do. You wanted him to lay hands. There was no expectation. That just now we'll get to an example later where there is this understanding that there doesn't always have to be a laying on of hands, that God has certain kind of flexibility when it comes to healing, and we should be grateful that He does. But still, this is the expectation, this is the norm, this is how it's done. He expected Christ to come and lay hands on the individual. But if you then go to, say, Mark chapter 6, we have a case where Christ actually couldn't do very much. Mark chapter 6, we have Christ in Nazareth, and he's not able to do much there. Because some people are so busy seeing the human side of things, they can't see God moving in the background. And they knew Jesus so well from his time when he was younger. Isn't this the son of a carpenter, right? I mean, we knew this guy. He, he played with my kids. My kid isn't going around healing people and doing this. And it was difficult for them to see past the human they saw to see God who's moving behind it all. 
And so Jesus actually wasn't able to do much there. You know, so much of what God does is able to do is contingent upon us because he's not really just here to heal us. He's not really just here to, to, to make our lives better. He's trying to create children in us. He's working a larger plan than just making sure we're healthy. And none of that was present in these people. There was no real faith that was needed that the healing would work with to serve a larger purpose. And so it literally says in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So again, it is a part of healing. This idea that I want healing, but it's necessary to go outside of myself to achieve that. And some people, they were not healed because they didn't have that ability to reach out to the source of that that was not, that was not in them. Now, I will highlight that again, definitely God has a prerogative to use other means of healing. Uh, in fact, in Luke chapter 7, I want to go to this particular example because there's still important similarities and, and connections to laying on of hands and things that must be there in terms of this particular point. Luke chapter 7, in verse 1. We read, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, a centurion is going to be a, a Roman, at least in part of the Roman government, centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. That is, yes, he, he's a Gentile. He's not, he's not a part of our people, but he is so deserving. He, he served us as someone who loves God's people. He says in verse 5, For he loves our nation, has built us a synagogue. And so, verse 6, Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Such an astonishing act of faith. Even in Luke, uh, sorry, in verse 9, Jesus Christ says flat out, I, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. He says this is, this is astonishing. But it's important to see verse 8. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's interesting he talks about how I'm a person, uh, I'm a man placed under authority, but what does that mean? That means when he tells people to go, they go. It's, it's subtle and it's easy to miss. But notice he doesn't say, I am a man with authority. And I tell people to go and they go. Because if I just said, hey, look, I'm a guy that tells people to go and they go, you would think I'm talking about my authority. But he's saying, no, I'm a person under authority. Why else would they go? Because I have nothing in myself. I recognize that there's someone above me with authority and that when I speak, I recognize I am representing a higher power than myself, something outside of me. And when I send them to go, they go. It's just a remarkable example. But notice some important things there. And we'll actually see them reflected in the other lessons of laying on of hands. This recognition, he did not have it within himself 
to accomplish what he needed. That how, whatever his relationship with God was, which might have been mighty at the time for what it could have been as a Gentile, was not something he should rely upon to ask that God, that there was, that he needed to reach out beyond himself, uh, to someone and something else. And we'll see another example where it's not laying on of hands that's used for healing, but we see so many of those elements present that are taught to us through the laying on of hands. Let's move to the second point. And it's, it's very similar to the first. The first one was that there are things we truly need, but we don't find them within ourselves. That we have to go outside of ourselves for those things. The second point I want to talk about in terms of what laying on of hands teaches us is that we have to go to another human being. We have to go to another human being. And I don't know about you, and maybe as far as you're concerned, this might as well be the same as the first point, but that makes a difference for me. Because if you're going to tell me something, I've got to go on a great quest, right? Like the, the tales of Hercules. Go and find the 18-headed lion that spews fire and bring me its tail to swing around your head. Something like that, you know, where you've got to go. You've got to find the, the flower of healing on the Mount of Despair beyond the River of Doom or all this kind of stuff. Well, now that's something outside of you. But to me, it's not nearly as humbling to say, no, you've got to go to another person. You've got to go to another human being. It's like, well, why is that person any better than me, right? Why is, what's, 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 what's up with that? You know, can I, can I just do something else? You have to go to another person for laying on of hands. And to me, that's an element of humility. It is the opposite of the do-it-yourself Christianity that we see in the world and that sometimes infects some of us in the church. This idea that it's God and me and that's it. Now don't get me wrong. There are times when we stand and we have to stand opposing difficult forces and there's no one around us. It's only God with us. That's true. And I'm not trying to knock that, right? I'm not trying to knock that. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to face down Nebuchadnezzar, they couldn't look around and say, all right, you with us, boys? There was nobody with them, right? But it's so easy to get caught up in that and assume that somehow that spirit of... that, that, That is supposed to communicate to a spirit of independence. When God has explicitly crafted in His church a remarkable interdependence that is supposed to be what helps us in those times. Right? Anyone who stands there facing down a government has generally been able to do so because of the support they've had. Whether they've been reared in the church, they've had a chance to be taught, they've had those who love them and work with them, and then they find themselves in this circumstance. We have this spirit in the world of this do-it-yourself relationship with God. The DIY church of God, you know, if you will. And I'm sorry, God condemns that in so many places and under no uncertain terms at all. And the laying on of hands, being part of that foundation, reminds us, no, you've actually got to go to another human being. I have to go to another human being. Paul wrestled with this with the Corinthians, for instance. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Corinth was caught up in a lot, the spirit of a lot of different things. They definitely had some, some attitude going on. And they were, uh, some were dismissive of Paul, dismissive of Apollos and the rest. And they were, in many ways, doing a bit of DIY Christianity. 
And if you really read carefully a little bit between the lines, but sometimes explicitly what it says, a lot of them felt what they were doing was rooted in the Bible. Right? After all, I got a Bible. Why do I need anybody else? And you get the sense they were using biblical statements to justify their personal decisions about how things ought to be. And had lost sight that God actually creates a, a body in which we're dependent not just on things outside of ourselves. After all, the Bible's outside of ourselves, right? But on actually on other human beings. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for instance, where it's talking about how puffed up they are. In verse 7, he asked them, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then he goes full sarcasm, because Paul does that sometimes. Oh, you're already full. Oh, you're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. He goes, you know, indeed, I, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. You know, if you were reigning, that'd be fantastic, because the rest of us would be. So, but you know what? You're not, he says. Is Paul, Paul can be really biting sometimes. You know, it's very difficult. He was like a father to them to a certain extent. There's times he's happy and praising, and times he's like, oh, you're killing me. You're killing me, Corinth. You're killing me. Uh, so in this, he's reminding them, what do you have that you didn't receive, that wasn't preached to you by Apollos, that I didn't preach to you, he says. And you're caught up as if you didn't get these things from other people. I've seen apostates out there in the world. I saw one in particular. Uh, he's, he's no longer living, but he was one that really wanted a follower after himself. And he completely reinterpreted the holy days in many ways. But it's fascinating when you look at his interpretations, which I don't recommend. Uh, I had to, in a sense. He was writing me, and it was just a mess. Uh, there was a, someone caught in his clutches, and I was trying to counsel with that person. But you look that he wouldn't have actually known enough to reinterpret the holy days if he hadn't have previously been taught the meaning of the holy days had been keeping them under Herbert W. Armstrong. It's like he has no idea. It's like, well, he's, he's grown based on this foundation. So he decides, well, you know what? I guess uh, i got to demolish this foundation and do something. For There's nothing he had he didn't receive from others. And yet he, he came across like he was some sort of great source, if you will. In fact, let's go to James chapter 5. I'm talking about going to another human being, James Chapter 5 and verse 14. When we're sick, what should we do? Maybe not just a sniffle or something, but regardless, our default should be what we see in James chapter 5 and verse 14. We read here, is anyone among you sick? Let him pray, for you don't need nobody else. What? Oh, that's, that's not what it says. If your Bible says that, it's... You have my permission to burn that one because it's a really, really bad Bible. Uh, it says in James chapter 5 and verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's interesting, even the anointing with oil is a physical act. There's actually a physical touch with that. And there's this physical, you know, kind of sense to it. We'll talk about that just a little bit later. But notice it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. You need to reach out to another human being. That's what he says. And, 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 and the laying on of hands reminds us of that, that we have to go to other people in our lives. Uh, in fact, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but many of you are familiar with the example in the book of Acts about handkerchiefs or cloths or aprons being brought from Paul to other people uh, and then being healed. 
That's actually the basis of the anointed cloth uh, practice that we do, is that. And it's interesting that even in that, there is this kind of physical connection, right? You know, when, I, when, I, when I'm anointing a cloth, I, I don't know how other ministers do it. I, it's been a long time since so I've seen somebody else do it, but I, I lay hands on it, kind of squish it. You know, I don't really crush it, but still, I've got the oil on it, and I kind of lay hands on it, and I, 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 I pray as if I were in the presence of the person, talking to God about, you know, that he would use this. Uh, and then what do they do when they get it? Well, what do you do? You put it on yourself. There's this interesting, you know, kind of connection. But it reminds us, we don't have anointed cloth vending machines, right, for you to just go and put a quarter in and it pops out. You've got to talk to another human being. And this laying on of hands as a fundamental idea reminds us of that, that we have to humble ourselves and be willing to go to another person and talk about, you know, whatever this is. A third point. The laying on of hands teaches us. Not that we just have to go outside of ourselves. There's things we need outside of ourselves. But also we have to go to other human beings. But this third point, not just any human being will do. Not just any human being will do. If you turn to Acts chapter 8. I think I commented too much on this passage a few months ago in a Sometimes you get distracted from your main sermon and you get caught up in another. I call those side quests, if you will. So, uh, you know, I had a little side quest, I think, on this one. It's actually more, more relevant here. In Acts chapter 8, and we have Philip, and Philip is amazing. Philip is a deacon. We actually saw him becoming, a, as best we understand, maybe there's things that we don't see here and there, but I think the evidence supports that he was still a deacon. Uh, he was uh, deaconified, if you will, just earlier as a part of the original original group of guys. But here he is in Samaria, and miracles are happening at the hands. I mean, the, what the church was doing back then was absolutely astonishing. You had uh, unclean spirits being cast out. You had uh, uh, paralyzed people. Right, suddenly being able to move, uh, you you had these amazing things that were being done, and God was connecting those things to to Philip. These signs that God was moving in the world, and then we have uh, it says in verse twelve, when they believed Philip, this is in Samaria, verse twelve, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now understand at this point they were just dunked in water, as we'll see later. They did not have hands laid on them. And they were not given God's spirit yet. But they were dunked in water. And it says in verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them, these people, these baptized people, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he, it's actually just the spirit, it's an it, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized, that is, submerged in water, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then Simon, Simon Magus, he's often called, saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He tries to buy this. Say, man, I would love to do that. Here's 50 bucks. You know, go buy whatever you want. I don't care what you spend it on. Just give me the power to lay on hands and give people God's spirit. And they say, verse 20, your money perish with you. You big jerk. They didn't say you big jerk, but they might have maybe in Aramaic or something. Regardless, they were not, they were not pleased and they did not do that. But here I want to highlight Notice Philip, miracles are happening around Philip. And yet when it comes to laying hands on someone and give God's spirit, no matter what God is showing in Philip, Philip clearly 
understood that he was not a human who had the authority to lay hands and give God's spirit. How impressive is Philip in that regard? Honestly, you know, if if you brought me a bunch of paralytics and all of a sudden, you know, uh, they're all walking around and stuff, you know, because of my preaching or whatever, it'd be easy to get your head pretty big. Man, God is using me. You know, I know so-and-so. I haven't seen him heal any paralytics or anything like that. But, But Philip understands he had not been appointed to have that kind of authority. And he took it seriously. And if you think about it, it would have been an offense to God for Philip to have taken on authority to himself that he did not have. Now, God does use him as an evangelist. And we see later in the book of Acts, he's called Philip the evangelist. So he was raised in rank. He was made a minister. Personally, my personal theory, speculation. Anyone remember Inspector Gadget, right? Uh, I used to think that anytime I speculate, I wish I could do like Inspector Gadget and have like some siren come out of my head and warn, because this is, this is me, right? This is me. But I, I wonder if this was the moment, because what do we do when we ordain someone? Is we look for God's fruit in them. We, we look, we, we, we notice that someone, God seems to be showing the fruit of an elder or showing the fruit of a deacon. And so we want to ordain them. Because it seems to be God's desire, and and we want God through that to empower them to do that job more fully. And to me, it's very possible that the apostles came and they saw what God was doing in Philip and recognized God is calling this man to be a spreader of the gospel, which is what evangelist essentially means. And maybe he was ordained after that. I, I don't know. We'll get to ask him one day. And they might say, Smith... Your ideas are dumb. Thank you for saying it was speculation because that's totally not what happened. But I I do wonder. The point is, it makes a difference who the people are. It makes a difference to God. Now, maybe it doesn't make a difference to us. It's irrelevant. It makes a difference to God. That's the important thing. In fact, let's go to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 16. It's so easy to write off the Korah and the leaders of Israel who rebel as just a bunch of rebellious weirdos of some sort. Who's the fellow that portrayed him in the Ten Commandments? I can't recall. It was, it was that Korah. I thought, no, it was Dathan, right? Wasn't it Dathan, the character in the Ten Commandments? It's like, ah, Moses. You're expecting to see, you know, a cigar in his hand. Ah, Moses. I got plans, Moses. You're not a part of them. You know, whatever. You know, this kind of conniving sort of fella. But that is not who these people were. Not as best as we can tell. Korah, the people that rebelled with him were men of renown in the congregation. They were incredibly respected in the congregation as leaders in the congregation, which would have included some kind of appointment. Verse 1, we read now, this is uh, number 16, verse 1. Now Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, on, uh, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. These are men who were respected who would have dealt with Moses and such on a regular basis. These were leaders among leaders, not caricatures, which would have made the temptation to say what they say all the greater. Number 16 in verse 3. 
They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the eternal is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You know, if all you saw was just the flesh, if you lacked the faith to see God working in the events, it's exactly what you could conclude. And it's true, the congregation is holy. Right? Like all of us are holy, we're sanctified, we're set apart. The fact is, God had not appointed them to that place. And as a result, the earth eats them like Pac-Man. Because God isn't going to have that. It makes a difference who the people are. And laying on of hands reminds us of that. You know, if I, if I'm, if my hip is really hurting, it does, I'm, you know, yeah, once you get past 50, really, you know, the warranties start to run out pretty fast. You know, so my hip is really hurting, you know, maybe I've mistreated it, you know, I need to repent and, you know, I can't just go, hey, you know, David, hey, you busy. Could you, could you come lay hands on me, you know, and be better? Sure, dad. That's the, what you deserve. Go to a minister, right? Uh, we have people to go to and it makes a difference who those people are. God's appointment means something. Uh, let's look at one last example. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And by the way, not all of these examples are straight up examples of laying on of hands, as you just said. Rather, laying on of hands teaches us the principle, and I'm trying to emphasize how important that principle is. And what a service the laying on of hands service does for us by reminding us of these fundamental ideas. In Deuteronomy 17, we read starting in verse 8, and this has been read a whole lot because of the difficult decisions the church has had to, has had to face. Verse 8, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the eternal your God chooses. You shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days and inquire of them, and they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You don't just go to anybody. You go to people whom God clearly says he has set them apart for judgment. He has set them apart to make those decisions so that his people are unified, like we heard in the sermonette. Verse 10, you shall go do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the eternal chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, According to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the eternal your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. God considers not regarding the person and a circumstance of evil and something to be uh, shunned from the congregation, something to be put out of the congregation because it's a dangerous thing. Anytime you see the death sentence involved, anytime you see this kind of thing of putting someone out, it's very often, if you really take a look at study at those kinds of decisions in the Old Testament, it's often to ensure something doesn't corrupt the congregation. 
It says in verse 13, And all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. God does not take lightly presumption. He takes it very seriously. And the laying on of hands reminds us about that. We don't just go to anybody. Like we read earlier in James chapter 5, when you're sick, go to the elders and have them uh, anoint you. Have them pray for you. The laying on of hands reminds us that God's appointment means something. That it means something in heaven. That if someone is, is, is trying to fill a role, and if you go up to God's roll call in heaven, and you don't see that God himself has appointed that person to that, then there's something to be condemned there. There's something we don't want to be a part of. And it's something that Korah clearly didn't understand. All right, let's look at another point, another lesson taught to us by the laying on of hands. Because this point, this is kind of a transition, that what we just talked about leads to this. God uses laying on of hands to picture and to reinforce his government. God uses laying on of hands to picture and to reinforce his government. Oh, actually, I skipped one. Let's see. I don't think it'll be all right. All right, let's go to Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27. You know, I debated about numbering these, and now I'm glad I I didn't. They're just bullet points, so uh, the order is different, but hopefully the lessons are still, will still work. In Numbers chapter 27 and verse 12, we'll start there. Now the Eternal said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, was, your brother, was gathered. He was kind of saying, once you've seen it, you're going to die. Which Moses, you think, is like, well, I don't know if I want to look. You know, I mean, do I want to look? At the same time, given what he had to deal with over all these, you might say, you know what, God, I am pooped. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. I think I'm, I think I'm ready. Uh, so he says in verse 14, he says, For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Now, it's interesting. This was the one thing, right? Moses messed up one time, right? It was the one thing. But we have to remember, if you're a teacher, you are held to a stricter judgment. I am astonished at how many people on Facebook, without declaring themselves officially teachers, choose to spread knowledge into the world from whatever source they happen to find credible. Because it's like they forget the fact that God says, everyone who believes what you say and acts on it, I'm holding you accountable for that. I'm holding you accountable for that because of your example. It's a terrifying thing not to be set aside as a person of any kind of authority or to take on yourself the role of teaching other people. If you're not rightfully spooked by the idea, we should be. We should be. I think two-thirds of the volume of Facebook would disappear 
if people properly understood the responsibility that that entails. But that said, so Moses messed up once, right? He messed up once. God says, look, it it was difficult because he had invested this in Moses, and Moses in the end actually failed to honor God by what he did. The people were aware of, of, of what that represented. So anyway, the point is he was not going into the land. So verse 15, it says, Moses spoke to the Eternal, saying, Well, let the Eternal, the God of all the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Eternal may not be like sheep, which have no shepherd. Moses recognized God's people need shepherds. That's how it all works. God's people need shepherds. We all need shepherds. I need a shepherd. And Moses recognized that, that you don't want chaos. God's government must exist. Please, God, appoint someone to fill that role. So in verse 18, God picks the next person. Now, is that who Moses was rooting for? Uh, Is this who Moses was praying about? You know, come on, God, you know, this is a great guy. We don't really know, but we do know that God picked him because that's how Appointments happen. It says, and the Eternal said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. Notice, I went over it pretty quickly in verse 18, but how does this happen? By Moses laying his hand on him. Verse 20, you shall give him, you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And so we look later, it says in verse 22, Moses did as the Eternal commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Eternal commanded by the hand of Moses. There was a laying on of hands. Notice the emphasis. It, it represents this continuity, Right? There was a passing of the torch, and it is in front of all the people. And Joshua submitted to Moses for that. Laying on of hands is a picture of submission. We'll touch on that a little closer to the end. Uh, It represented that God had invested Moses with authority, that God was now investing authority in Joshua. It backs up God's government. It reinforces that in fact, we'll, we'll come back to Numbers chapter 27 a couple of verses later. So if you want to put a marker there, uh, feel free. But I want to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Because the fact that it was done in the sight of the people is actually interesting because this is part of God's modus operandi. God wants us to understand how he reigns in the church. And it wasn't just for Joshua's sake that he did this. He wanted it done in the sight of the people so the people would understand. So in Exodus chapter 19, this is something that it's easy to forget. Uh, one of my uh, favorite elements about this. In Exodus 19, we have the setup for the Ten Commandments being given. And I get all caught up in the special effects aspect of it. You know, the, the thunder and the lightning and the flames and the smoke and the mountains shaking and, and all the people in Israel just completely freaking out. You know, it's an amazing scene where it was probably the closest thing that any of them could ever even imagine what it was like to have divinity sort of touch the earth and not hold back from its power. An amazing scene. And God tells Moses that he's going to do this. 
And we see the beginning of, of, well, not the beginning, but kind of the transition where you have all the things going on. You have the mountain shaking, you have the smoke, you have the people terrified. Then it says in Exodus 19 and verse 19, when the blast of the trumpet, the word is actually so far there, when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Exodus 19 and verse 9. And the Eternal said to Moses, before all this, the Eternal said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. That the people may hear when I speak with you. I want them to hear it, even though I'm talking to you, Moses. I want all of them to hear it so they'll believe you forever. They will understand who you are and where I've put you to do these things. And they will respect the things you say because you're my servant in this. It wasn't just God wanted them to be impressed with the Ten Commandments. Part of the reason for the show was so they would listen to the leader God appointed. God uses laying on of hands to picture and reinforce his government. We don't just go again to anybody. We go to ministers. We go to people that God has set aside. The laying on of hands teaches us that we don't just go to anyone. We have to go to someone God has authorized. And it reinforces his government. Next point. We should know that it is God who is acting in the laying on of hands. Yes, it is a person. It's a human being. It's our physical hands. But it's God who's present in the moment. It's God who's crafted that environment, and it's God who is taking action at that time. In fact, let's go back to, I said two, but I'm going to change the order of these. Let's go to Numbers chapter 27 again. Numbers 27. And we saw, for instance, that in verse 18, why was Joshua at the laying on of hands? Because God decided it would be Joshua. Because God made the decision. Why was Moses going to be laying hands on him? Because God told him, you go lay hands on him. Again, let's read that in verse 18. It says, the eternal said to Moses, take Joshua. Again, there's a command. You take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you. You know, it's really amazing also to think, here's Joshua, clearly an orphan, who's risen to this thing because he's the son of, of Nun. Yeah, that was awful. You should should feel bad for laughing for that. Uh, Here we have Joshua. He's not an orphan. He's actually the son of someone named Nun. Uh, So you do this. A man is on the spirit. And then you lay your hand on him. God is commanding all these things. He's the one who's acting. Why is Joshua going to be in charge? Because God picked him. Why is Moses laying hands? Because God told him to. Why is he being inaugurated as the leader? Why is any authority at all passing to him? Because God is passing that authority. When it comes to laying on of hands, when it's healing, it's not the minister who's healing, right? We're asking, you hear us pray when we lay hands, that God heals, that Christ's sacrifice, including his broken body, is, is, is reflected on by God at that time, and that a healing comes through the stripes of Jesus Christ. When you're baptized, the minister doesn't lay hands, then slip his hands and pull out a syringe full of Holy Spirit, you know, and jab it in you and, and stick it, and then you got it. What do we do? We ask God to place that spirit in the other person. When there's a marriage, 
uh, marriage is a setting apart, right? We do laying on of hands in that. Usually, for me, we clasp hands all together, but it is a laying on of hands. And it's God who's joining them as man and wife, just as it says in the Gospels. What, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. The minister doesn't do that with the authority of the state. It's God who creates that family in that sense. It's God who is the actor. In fact, there's a fascinating passage related to that, if you will, in John chapter 3. And this is actually not necessarily a laying on of hands, and yet I've learned so much from it. And the lesson is related to this. John chapter 3, verse 22. says, After these things, this is John three twenty-two. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So what do we read here? Jesus baptized. Just keep that in mind. So as we move through, we read about the discussion with John's disciples. It has that fantastic Fantastic line in verse 30 that I, even though it's not relevant to my point, I can't pass it and not read it where, where John the Baptist says he must increase, but I must decrease. Just one of the most astonishing, uh, statements of humility in the Bible, uh, that humans just don't seem to be able to master without his help. Uh, but earlier than that, we saw, I actually kind of skipped right over it. Verse 26, when they were talking, in verse 26, the disciples of John the Baptist to him, it says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified, behold, he is baptizing. And all are coming to him. So who's baptizing? Again, we read Jesus is baptizing. Let's actually move all the way to the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 4. And verse 1, word has come to the Pharisees that now here's this guy who's baptizing even more people than John did. And John was an irritant to them. So this is just more irritation. John chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, parentheses, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, that is, his disciples were doing the baptizing, if it's in there, it's in there for a reason, verse 2. Yeah, it's got parentheses around it, but if you ever get any of my emails, you know it's always got more parentheses than emails are supposed to have. However, it's in there for a reason, right? That is, God inspired John to make sure we knew that for all of these people being baptized, even more that John the Baptist, John the Baptist was baptizing, and even though the Bible says Jesus was baptizing, he was baptizing, Jesus baptized more disciples, we're then told Jesus himself, that is the person, the man, Jesus didn't do the baptizing. He had his disciples doing the baptizing. And you might think, well, why, is, why would you go to Jesus and say, oh, you know, thank you for all this. I, I, want, I want to go closer to God. I want to repent. This was just a baptism of repentance. The Holy Spirit had not been given yet. But still, I, I want to repent. And so Jesus then says... That's this wonderful child, uh, Peter, come here, Peter, baptize her. He's right there, right? He's right there. You know, why wouldn't he? Is it just because he was busy and such? Well, it is interesting to me, and I feel like I've learned so much from it, because in a sense, there's so many things Jesus does as an example that pictures larger things. Like when Jesus went to John the Baptist himself to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, whoa, you know, I mean, are you kidding? You know, I should be baptized by you. And you're here because Jesus had no sin. There was nothing to repent of. Why was he baptized? And Jesus says, you know, permit it to be so for now, for righteousness sake. He set a picture for us. He was picturing larger realities throughout his ministry. And to me, it's fascinating here to understand that when someone is baptized, when they're brought into the family, 
of God in embryo here. Whenever we are healed, uh, whenever we are ordained, who is truly doing all of that? It's God who's doing it. But he's doing it through his chosen representatives. It may be the people he has set aside. And as we saw earlier, it's not just anybody. You have to go to particular people. But that doesn't change the fact that he's doing it. You know, we have, the church has been around long enough. There's people that have been baptized by ministers that a decade or two passes. And somehow the next time you see that minister, I was talking about a similar example earlier. Next time you get them is a Christmas card from them. You know, while they're busy eating a ham sandwich, smoking a cigar, uh, and wishing you a happy Halloween, right? Uh, and it's like, oh, well, great. You know, that's the minister that baptized me 40 years ago. So what, what happened to my baptism, right? Well, as long as that person truly was, in, he was the person there. He was ordained. He was authorized by God to do that, then remember it's God who brought you into the family. Right? And God hasn't moved. God's still God. Jesus is still Jesus. It's God who acts in these things. But all the more then we want to go to one of his representatives. Notice it said it was his disciples that did the baptizing. It wasn't just random Joes. It was people that he had appointed to do that. The last points I'll make here, because I am running out of time and want to wrap up, is that what is our role in a baptism? If we receive, sorry, not baptism, a laying on of hands. When we receive the laying on of hands, it's a role of humble submission. Humble submission. As we've read, looking at the other points, we have to submit our pride to a certain extent, recognizing that we're not content in ourselves, we're not sufficient in ourselves, that we have to go to someone else. It's a submission to God. It's doing things the way he wants us to do them. Even physically, with heads bowed, because there's a prayer going on, is a picture of submission to God. It's a submission to God's government, that we don't just pick anyone, that we go to the people that he has designated for such things. And it reminds me of the accolade. For those of you who know what an accolade is, we think of accolades as just praise, like, oh, the singers, you receive great accolades. But accolade actually is a French word, and it harkens all the way back at least to the uh, uh, to the Middle Ages with knights and kings and the rest, which is part of why I like it because I dig swords and all that kind of stuff. That sounds I'm not a weirdo or anything, you know. I just as a kid like the idea of chivalry and having this code that a man should live up to, and and the whole idea of knights just fascinated me. And when a, when a man is knighted by the king. What does he do? He goes before the king and he kneels. And the traditions vary, but often there's a sword involved and the king taps the person on each shoulder, not just once, but usually a few times while you sit and yield and do nothing. And then you stand and there's great honors, you know, that you're accepted and you're, you're a part of that. And that's man's way of doing, you know, uh, rituals of submission, if you will. But laying on of hands is God's way. Really, even the minister who's bowing with his head is submitting to God. God, we're doing things your way. This person is picturing his in his physical form even now, his submission to you, his submission to your government. Please work in this and accomplish your purposes for this person and what he needs. And the last thing I'll say as I wrap up, the last point, is that in the laying on of hands, one of the lessons we learn is that it means something to be set apart by God. Laying on of hands is a setting apart. 
in a very particular way, when you lay hands on one person, you're not laying hands on all the other people. You're not laying hands on. It's kind of a physical picture of setting apart. But it was also the means by which things are set apart. You see many examples in the Old Testament before an animal is sacrificed. Often there's a laying on of hands in some kind of way. Uh, you know, picturing a specifying of that particular animal. In the marriage ceremony, we say the following before we lay hands. We read, uh, inasmuch as the scriptural example in all cases of ordination or setting apart is by the laying on of hands and prayer, please now join hands and we will ask the eternal God to unite you as husband and wife. It is a setting apart. And the fact that laying on of hands exists in the church reminds us that we are a set apart people. And that comes with obligations. It's not just a name badge. It's not something just to glory in. There's an expectation of the one set apart. The animal that has had hands laid on it is about to serve in a way all the other animals don't. It's about to be sacrificed in that case. In a marriage where hands is laid, that becomes sacred ground. There's an obligation on those people. If you ask God to heal you and hands are laid on you and you're set apart in that way for divine healing, there's an obligation to do the things that come with that and to seek divine principles of health and to seek to align yourselves with those things. When it comes to ordination, when hands are laid on you, there's an obligation to fulfill the charge you've been set apart for. And that's what laying on hands of hands should remind all of us, that we've been set apart for something and we need to act accordingly. You know, as I wrap up here in the conclusion, I'll just say one thing. It's a, I should have asked her for details, uh, but uh, Isabel de Simone uh, once showed me something she has, which is this, t- you can tell me later if I get it wrong, this collection, this, this sort of a family tree, if you will, of uh, music teachers, right, of who has taught her and who taught them and who taught them. And she goes back like all the way to... Adam and Eve. No, she doesn't go back that far. But she goes back to like some big names. I can't remember if it's Mozart or Brahms or whoever. But regardless, oh sorry, you can ask her later. You know who who they are. And it's it's this interesting connection, right? And if you think about it, we have Passover coming up. And I never, well, I can't say I never, but almost every Passover, this strikes me, and it's moving when I think about it. You know, if you have God's Spirit in you, then hands were laid upon you by someone set aside by God who also had God's Spirit. Uh, to make you a part of the family. But you know, that person only has God's spirit because someone laid hands on that person. And that person has God's spirit because someone had hands laid on that person. And you trace this back and you go all the way to Jesus Christ, founding of the church. And in a sense, if we could see with the eyes of God, if we had the ability to put these sort of timeless pictures together, where we could see every single one of those moments where God's Spirit is given at one time, it'd be this beautiful, physically connected picture of a people that are the people of God, that He has set apart in the world for something remarkable and astonishing. It'd be a picture of the body of Christ, picturing Christ's own submission to his Father, but also picturing the love of the family of God as they serve and as they lead and as they bless and as they set apart. It'd be this beautiful picture. And I'm reminded of it every, again, almost every Passover when we're all together and seeing just one, the latest frame, if you will, in the collection of all of those pictures. 
I hope all of us will remember that and understand there's a reason God put the laying on of hands in Hebrews 6. It is so fundamental to everything we are and everything we are to do and everything God wants us to be. And there's a reason why it's one of our fundamental concepts in the church. 